Hello there, Catherine Robinson here, and welcome to Extra. It's lovely to have your company each Monday. To technology and disorder. While digital technology has created more conversation, innovation and revolution, it's also unleashed many dark and destabilising forces. How to unify governments, business and civil society so as to build an open and free digital order is a pretty serious challenge for the global community. Our next guest says we need to get cracking in creating a new Bretton Woods-style system for the digital age and has some stark warnings about technology and the threat it poses to democracy. Dr. Samir Saran is head of the Observer Research Foundation. Now, that's a leading think tank based in Delhi, India. He curates the Raisina Dialogue, India's annual flagship platform on geopolitics and geoeconomics, and is the founder of SciFi, India's annual conference on cybersecurity and internet governments. He's also the author of four books. And Dr. Saran has been in Australia with the Lowy Institute this past week, speaking at conferences in Canberra and at events in Sydney. Welcome to Saturday Thank Extra. You, Saran, you've been warning that technology is posing something of an existential threat to democracy, that if democracy is to survive, technology will have to be tamed. How so? Um, you know, Catherine, I say this from a sense of seriousness. Society and democracy, our political regimes and our international partnerships have all kept a pace with each other. In many ways, our constitutions and our international agreements reflect our social realities of that moment. Uh, they were shaping. We as people were being able to shape, uh, in many ways, the arrangements that managed us and governed us. Technology is changing this balance, is changing this equilibrium. Technology is changing social modes. It is changing who we are as individuals. It is changing how we express ourselves. It is aggregating grievances. It is creating irrational mobilizations. And it is challenging the social conditions that allowed institutions that manage us to emerge. And in that sense, uh, individuals and social institutions, political institutions, international institutions are on a collision course. And we have to ensure that the pace of technology does not tear apart the carefully constructed arrangements of the past. Mm. I know that you see India and the world, and I, I guess Australia in all of that, as being caught between what you call big tech and red tech. Can you tell me what these ecosystems are and what is worrying about those? So for me, sitting in India, which is a dense multicultural society, country, uh, we had certain norms of social behavior. We had uh, freedom of expression with reasonable restrictions, which means we did not allow each other to poke each other in the eye all the time. When uh, big tech, American technology arrives in India, it carries with it the American absolutist freedom of expression uh, codes and, and, and frameworks. And suddenly all of us are saying all sorts of things to each other. Uh, and we are beginning to see the dimensions of social conversations change. Now, it doesn't mean that we should not have absolute freedom of expression. I, I'm not a votary for denying anyone the absolute right to express themselves. 
But certainly, we have to have certain conditions uh, and certain context to those conversations. Uh, we have not, as societies, been able to get there, while technology that allows us to behave like that is upon us. And that, that's creating a disturbance. You know, you are continuing to see the polarizations and mobilizations in the U.S., in India, in other democratic countries, in, in free societies that are uh, pitching us against each other. And, and in some sense, I think there now needs to be a rethink on uh, the, this new social uh, arena where uh, our daily conduct is being mediated. The role of the platforms, uh, the algorithms that manage them, the biases that promote certain kind of uh, uh, expression over others, all need to be, uh, in some sense, rethought, relooked at, and made more accountable to to uh, the constitutions that we swear by. Mm. So, and uh, the, the, uh, on, on the other hand, you have the red tech, right? So this is big tech. This is mm. like tech which comes from the free world. Mm. And that itself is in its uh, evangelical approach to American-style uh, societies is, is not only challenging American society, but also others. On the other hand, you have red tech, the Chinese tech, which uh, is produced, promoted, and distributed with the sole purpose of furthering uh, China's agenda, the Communist Party of China's agenda. Mm. And uh, for them, uh, the Communist Party is supreme. Uh, your agency is irrelevant. Your data belongs to them. And that is a different kind of technology offering on the horizon. And therefore, countries like India, Australia, EU, and others have to uh, work with the big tech companies bring them to um, a, a more sensible space that can allow all of us to participate with greater agency and responsibility. So listening to that, it seems that you have issues with both big tech, the American side of things, and red tech, which you've confirmed as the Chinese side of things. And I know that you've gone so far with respect to red tech as arguing that China should be banned from social media altogether. I mean, is that a practical solution and even possible it's clearly a solution that not many folks would agree with at the outset. But let me try and explain why I said it. Uh, in the world today, diplomacy uh, and engagement between different communities and countries happens online and increasingly it will be digitalized. Now, in this situation, if the Chinese were to be present in all our social conversations but were to deny us from participating in theirs, uh, which is their own versions of uh, of Twitter and Facebook and, and, and the internet itself, uh, it would be an unlevel playing field. It's like allowing China uh, embassy in Australia and the Chinese preventing you from opening one in their country. Would any country allow this? We have reached a situation today where the Chinese participate in our public sphere, they participate in our democracy, they uh, uh, criticize Albanese, they criticize Morrison, they criticize Trump, they criticize Modi, they criticize and, and sometimes even catalyze criticism of all our political uh, discussions and political systems while hiding behind the great firewall of China, not allowing us any uh, entry other than curated and controlled into their public discussions. Mm. Now, I'm fine if the Chinese participate in our uh, arenas, if they allow us to do the same, as long as they have this uh, uh, one directional access uh, and ability to game sometimes and to uh, pervert sometimes our discussions without us having the ability to do the same to theirs 
we are creating a, a dangerous situation. Mm. I will come to who you think the arbiter of the most optimum internet or platform platform might look like. But I know you've been speaking here in Australia and you made note of grey zones in one of your discussions and mm-hmm. how touching on the point there that Chinese operations are attempting to shape public opinion in different geographies. And you make note of that particularly in societies which are small and homogenous. Do you have examples of them achieving results? So Chinese have been able to build a huge upswell in our own neighbourhood. For example, uh, if you were to look to our west and you have uh, uh, Pakistan or to our south and you have Sri Lanka, you were able to see how they were able to purchase influence and acceptance from uh, the largest swaths of those two countries. Uh, Both of them countries which have a certain dominant community, they were able to uh, inveigle themselves within those uh, power brokers of that community and were able to purchase influence irrespective of political outcomes of that country. So irrespective of which party came to power, Everyone wanted China. And we've seen them do this through, uh, of course, the proliferation of Chinese uh, electronic hardware, but also now Chinese uh, applications, TikTok and others, which continue to um, uh, infuse uh, more youngsters from that part of the world to embrace uh, the Chinese proposition. Um, now, these are not small countries. These are large countries which have uh, governments that are selected by a community. And if they could influence that community to uh, to favor China, they were able to retain a degree of stranglehold over the destiny of that particular country. Mm. For smaller islands and, and smaller countries, it's even more stark. Mm. Well, influences are coming from both sides. Big tech, um, you were telling the conference here in Australia on technology order and disorder that Google, Facebook, Amazon decide who you date, what you eat, what you choose, how you vote and what you think. Now, how dangerous is this level of control? Because those companies, they're all American companies and not necessarily answerable to Australian laws or Indian laws and not necessarily working in a local context and you make note that these companies might not be partisan. What sort of problems do you see that creating? So my challenge with big tech is slightly different to red tech. Uh, Big tech is primarily serving its bottom lines. So if uh, hate speech sells better, uh, we will see algorithms being biased to allow hate speech. If humor sells better, they will bias it to allow humor to travel further. Bottom lines decide the norms of communication for the algorithms that run these platforms. And in some sense, uh, uh, the incentive for stable, uh, healthy societies is not necessarily part of the bottom line framework. But having said that, these companies are increasingly not only the the curators and platforms of conversations and and social interactions, but they are also influencing our decision making. Uh, They are also providers of our lifeline requirements from, from, uh, you know, the connection to the net, livelihood, uh, since the, since digital is now literally going to offer us all that we need, uh, they are the gatekeepers for our access to our lifeline requirements. Now, in the past, these were the functions that were the prerogative of the government. Uh, governments were elected. If they did not provide these services, they were rejected. If, if they were incompetent uh, to offer these solutions to their citizens. If they were able to do this in an efficient manner, they were re-elected and sometimes... Uh, endorsed by, uh, by uh, as models of political governance by other nations. Mm. Now, 
when private sector starts stepping into the shoes of the government then boardrooms have to be under the same degree of accountability mm. do we elect the the chief executives of these companies do we have power over the board can communities reject them for say breaching our trust of or or, or or a big data leak or for an algorithm that went faulty and 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 led to uh, unrest in in certain communities or certain parts of the country we have to have a accountability framework that makes these boardrooms more more responsive to uh, the citizens they profess to serve and by the way they're not our enemies they're part of the solution so we will have to work with them um, last time around uh, any uh, big uh, corporations had this kind of power over us was uh, in the early 20th century uh, standard oil and that standard oil was dismembered because it had so much control over our lives and all those uh, 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 all standard oil did was to control the subways and the energy systems these folks control everything mm. well, and yet we are not having a sensible debate over the undue influence they have over our lives we have to rethink our relationship so a lot of this solution it seems would come down to regulation who regulates it how do you regulate it i mean i read brad smith president of the vice chair of microsoft australia said at davos that the way forward is through principles but whose principles will frame the regulation you know i agree with brad and i think he is one of the smartest thinkers uh, in this sector but brad still uh, comes from a very american view of the world and american principles are the underlying uh, ethic that uh, many of these corporations want to promote but now if american principles were so acceptable then why would countries have their own constitutions and therefore the challenge is not about just the principles that he mentions but a, a multiverse of principles that different geographies are comfortable with so i think the first challenge is that can we admit that there is still a requirement for context for culture and for national boundaries if we agree to that then we have the second order challenge of how do we ensure technology that has similar origins can serve different societies differentially and i think that's the second order uh, problem now none of this has not been done before and i can give a simple example we had movies that were not permitted in certain geographies they were not uh, released there they were released in other geographies where they were permitted in some geographies they were given a adult rating in other geographies they were a, 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 they were available for the for the general population so we have done this before with other media with other products with uh, even consumer goods where we have had certain statutory warnings when uh, different uh, geographies have appraised them differently we will have to be less lazy we will have to be quicker and we will have to come up with a framework where we are able to serve communities who are diverse i think the internet must not be uh, the way of homogenizing the world the internet must be the means of celebrating the diversity of the world mm. the diversity of the world cannot be celebrated by one law for all mm. diversity of the world can only be celebrated when context matter we know that in 2023 the un is aiming to agree on this global digital compact i mean what is this and will it have teeth so like anything with the un uh, this is likely to be the beginning of a global conversation not at the end point that we want to achieve i don't think there is enough buy in and i don't think a un led process has enough teeth uh, simply because of the differences that exist today within the un system the us is a divided lot the un is a divided lot and 
any UN agreement will be suboptimal, where we will come up with grandmother and apple pie statements. Uh, effective regulation has to be done in smaller groups. Mm. I think like-minded countries have to promote a certain view of the internet. India-EU partnership, for example, uh, could be one of those, where both of us have fairly large populations, fairly large econo- uh, economic footprints. And if we could agree on a, uh, on a via, via media and attract the Americans and others to join that, that could be one way of doing mm. it. Uh, the other medium could be uh, um, D10 or a, or, or a club of democracies who seek to preserve a fairly um, open and liberal ecosystem without uh, infringing on the cultural context of different countries. Mm. Uh, that could be another club that could be thought through. And I think there is an initiative for AI and, and governance of AI, which is based on this concept of uh, 10 democracies working together. Yeah. Something I think Canada, Australia, UK have all signed on to, and India as well are part of. Mm, so I think uh, plurilateralism seems to, be, it seems to me to be more efficient than a UN-led uh, uh, charge on this. But a UN-led charge has the advantage of crowding in interest. If UN takes up something, more people become aware of it and interested in it. Mm. So if the global compact could result in having serious deliberations and progress, it would be a a job well done. Yeah, it's interesting to me because I I listen to you talk about these uh, bodies and these groups and it's very much so at a macro high-end level. What about when you look at the the micro, the grassroots, where do the end Mm -hmm. users, the people who are using the internet, the civil society that is being driven by the internet, where should they sit in this discussion? So I think they are perhaps the most neglected lot, the ones whose lives and bedrooms are under threat by technology have little voice in the governance of the internet and this multi-stakeholderism model that has been promoted by many countries in nothing more than lip service simply because most folks who need to speak at these uh, discussions can't afford to be there and those who have been given tickets and sponsorship by uh, others to fly into these conversations have an obligation to to their funders Uh, we will have to find a way of democratizing Uh, these conversations. Uh, I think the Global South and certainly even within the Global South, uh, the the marginalized communities who are just tuning in to the digital world must have a say. Mm. And and, and therefore, I think what you have asked me is, uh, is, is the enduring challenge for internet governance. How do we bring diverse sets of voices from different parts of the world to have a say as we shape the new Bretton Woods or a new Bretton Woods-like structure for the future. Mm. Well, I think given the pace of technology, if we were to have this discussion in six months' times, it might sound even more different, but we are out of time for now, Dr. Samir Saran. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Catherine. Pleasure to be with you. And Dr. Samir Saran is head of the Observer Research Foundation, a leading think tank based in Delhi, India. Up next, the solar suburb and the huge number of renewable projects coming online on tackling transitions. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money. There's no other developed country with anything like the wealth of renewable energy resources that Australia has. It's the number one issue facing humanity and it's the number one issue for me. 
Now for Tackling Transitions, our regular look at the people and projects moving Australia towards zero emissions future. And honestly, this segment could be a 24-7 news service. Now, there's an idea. Beyond the immediate energy crisis, we're going to take a look at some significant renewable projects that are about to come online. Your guide here is Dr Nick Abberley from the Clean Energy Council. Good morning to you, Nick. Morning, Catherine. And to explore the challenges of getting more renewables rather to connect to the grid, we'll hear about Victoria's largest new solar suburb and town centre, which has dealt with a maze of transmission and regulatory issues to include large amounts of solar into the suburb's design right from the start. Now, Lachlan Bateman is the energy consultant behind that housing development. He's managing director of Clean Energy Partners and helps design microgrids, big batteries, all those kinds of projects. Welcome to you, Lachlan. Hi, hi, Catherine. Great to be here. And thank you both for joining us on uh, Tackling Transitions. Lachlan, I might just begin with you, given uh, we just outlined that solar suburb. It's in, it's in Kinley. Can you just talk me through what has been developed here in terms of power supply? Sure, Catherine. So, um, so Kinley is a new suburb um, in the east of Melbourne, and uh, and look, it's uh, it's it's been in the planning phase for for a number of years, and and the first houses are being built there now, and will be built over the the coming years. But but what um, we were involved with from the planning point of view was to try and uh, realise this view of a hundred percent solar on every rooftop, um, which um, sounds you know simple, I guess, but. Um, uh, normally, in these sort of residential um, areas, there's a there's a there's a threshold over which you know the um, the owners of the poles and wires start to say, look, there's just there's too much of this uh, solar capacity coming online, and we either need to curtail or or stop the um, stop the installation. So, but uh, the developers of Kinlay Intrapac, they they had this very strong vision from the outset that they really wanted to go for 100% solar. And uh, and so we worked with them and Osnet, who was the um, the power company there, to to demonstrate that um, with some modest changes to the infrastructure, they'd be able to install, you know, solar on every building, which mm. is which is pretty exciting. Yeah, you <clears> mentioned <throat> the infrastructure there. I mean, we're constantly hearing about on a national level how our grid needs to be upgraded to take on you know the renewables that are expected to come online at that at that macro level. But what did you find? more at the at the local level, was the, were the challenges of going down this path of putting so much solar into a suburb about the grid, about stability? What 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 did you what were the headwinds that you faced? Yeah, so I mean I think with the where we got to, uh, as I, as I said, the changes were fairly modest. So um, in practical terms um, there needed to be some um, additional, I guess, transformers installed on the site. And also some changes in the settings on the inverters that um, that are connected to the solar arrays. Um, what was what was sort of m- more challenging was just sort of going through a process which which was new and um, hadn't been done before. So there wasn't really sort of a guideline as how you approach a, a suburb with 100% solar, and so that required quite a few, I guess, quite a lot of modelling and um, iterative work to demonstrate you know what what needed to change and. Um, 
uh, and and uh, what uh, yeah, what we needed to do to, to get 100% solar up. So just how much solar is going into this project? I mean, in a, in a sense that how many homes could this, this power and what might it mean for, you know, energy bills? Because we're all grappling with that at the moment. Absolutely, yeah. So it's quite big in the in the scheme of things. So it'd be about up to fifty thousand panels, and uh, that that would equate to about fifteen megawatts of capacity. Uh, so that is that that that's the equivalent of a, a medium scale solar farm. So certainly, there's um, there's, a, there's a lot of solar farms dotted around the country that are that are around a five megawatt mark. So that's that's larger than that. Equally, there's um, solar farms on the grid, uh, which we might hear about from Nick as well, which are 10 times that size, but it is pretty significant in the scheme of things. And, and yeah, for it to sort of sit within the uh, context of a suburb like this is um, is new. Yeah, Nick, can, uh, I, can I just, yeah. you brought in Nick there, Lachlan, for me. So I'll just ask him to, to reflect on your comments there and this project. I mean, how significant is this approach? Because, Nick, we know it's, you know, one, build, one, one thing to really build these projects, but to get them swiftly and efficiently to connect to the grid is another. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think projects like what Lachlan was talking about are, are fascinating. I mean, the, the truth is there are lots of different types of solutions for our renewable energy transition. And the truth is that we need all of them. Uh, as you know, as Lachlan was saying, whether it's a, a whether it's a 500 megawatt solar farm out in a out in farmland, or or whether it's a 10 or 15 megawatt uh, facility built into a suburb. I mean, these are all equally important. We need all of these things. Mm. Uh, Nick, we know, uh, Lachlan, excuse me, 80% of homes in, in Victoria use gas for heating. We've seen just how reliant that state, amongst others, you know, in the eastern seaboard are reliant on gas. But will these homes in this solar suburb even be connected to gas? They will, yeah. So there'll be a, there'll be a gas and electricity connection for these, um, for these properties just to um, sort of cover all options. Uh, but, but I guess with the um, with the level of solar going in on the site, there's going to be certainly an incentive for people to use electric devices and uh, and really make the most of that um, that that free energy that they're going to be provided when they move into their new house. Mm. Uh, Nick, we in the introduction we mentioned that there's you know a range of solar products just waiting to come online. You've been involved in a a huge number, and it's not just solar here that, you know, we're looking at with the Kinley project. I mean, you're looking at wind farms, super batteries, pumped hydro. Can you talk me through a few of those, just beginning with the um, McIntyre wind farm? Now, that's southwest of Warwick in Queensland, and it's looking at being one of the largest onshore wind farms in the world. Yeah, that's exactly right. A very exciting project. Um, just for those who aren't too familiar with southeast Queensland, it's about 100 k's south of Toowoomba, uh, and you're right, it's one of the biggest in the world. Uh, there's there's one bigger one in, in the US and I think one in India. So this is going to be about 1,000 a, a megawatts. So, you know, this is the size of, a, of some of our coal-fired power stations. Uh, it's going to have about 180 wind turbines, each of those producing about 6 megawatts of, of capacity. Uh, you know, the, wind, turbine, wind turbines and wind farms tend to be quite spread out. Um, it's on, on sheep grazing land. Uh, covering about 36,000 hectares. You know, this is a big project, uh, but it's also going to power about 700,000 homes. So, you know, I think uh, we get, we get, we're seeing more and more of these very big wind farms coming along. Um, 
you know, McIntyre is one of the biggest, uh, and I think it's really exciting direction that, that we're able to connect these types of projects to our electricity grid. And looking on the timeline in that, it's expected to be operational in 2024 because I think where a lot of people get disheartened, particularly you know, this week and the last couple of weeks where we've seen the energy crunch on the east coast of the country, they hear about renewables, what's in the pipeline, but it seems often there's a, an understanding that they're too far away, but this project itself says, well, actually it's not. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they just had their first sod-turning ceremony uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I think. Um, I mean, I think probably a lot of people don't actually realise we're already getting a third of our electricity in Australia from renewables. Of that 33%, it's about a 50-50 split between large-scale projects, so big wind and solar farms and, and hydro uh and then the other 50% is rooftop solar. I mean, we've got over a million uh, Australian homes with rooftop solar now. So, you know, that's a, that's a third of our electricity that's coming from renewables. So I think one of the situations is that, you know, we just tend not to see them, right? You know, they're, they're out in the countryside. People don't see it. They just switch on their lights and, and everything works. And I think that's how people want it. Um, you know, the, these wind and solar projects are, are being built all over the country uh, in, all, in all corners of every state. Uh, and there's lots of them, right? You know, there's mm. there's big ones like McIntyre, and I'll, I'll run through a couple of other ones. But you know, there are there are dozens of projects uh, under construction right now. Sixty six projects under construction, uh, or, or financially committed right now. That's that's seven gigawatts of capacity, uh, and there's another six gigawatts of of projects that are you know almost at the at the approval stage. So. There, there are many, many projects coming um, and, you know, I guess it's testament to the pace of the energy transition that we're seeing in Australia. Do we know, though, that whether this is enough to uh, replace the retiring cold fleet? We heard from Daniel Westerman, the head of AEMO, um, in a recent speech pointing out that the National Connection Team was managing 189 new projects, but is it enough to replace, you know, what the retiring coal um, infrastructure and, and fleet? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, this is kind of a $64 million question and built within that are a lot of assumptions around exactly how fast those coal-fired power stations are going to close. Uh, in in its last big report, the Australian Energy Market Operator said that coal-fired power stations were closing three times faster uh, than people had previously anticipated. And we're seeing that uh, in Victoria uh, with the Yulon power station closing in 2028. We're seeing it in New South Wales with Araring, which is one of the biggest in the country, uh, closing by 2025. So the, the, the Australian Energy Market Operator says that by 2030, we should have uh, 25 to 30 gigawatts more uh, large-scale renewable energy than what we have right now. So it's basically tripling of our large-scale renewables uh, this decade. Mm. Um, in the last 12 months, we've connected three gigawatts uh, of wind and solar farms. The year before that was three gigawatts. So on that kind of trajectory... Uh, we are actually on track to getting the renewables we need to having quite a few of our coal-fired power stations, if not most or even all of our coal-fired power stations, closing 2030, early 2030s. And do you think that um, the Waratah super battery, this um, 700 megawatt standby uh, network battery that's up in the New South Wales Central Coast, is going to be key to getting all this electricity onto the grid? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Waratah super battery is fascinating. I mean, it, it, it hasn't 
uh, taken full shape yet. But you're right. I mean, what the New South Wales government is calling for is tenders on a to build a 700 megawatt battery. Uh, this would be the largest in the southern hemisphere. Uh, although it's really interesting to note that the size of, of what we're calling big batteries is just getting bigger and bigger. Uh, it was only a year, a half, year and a half or two years ago where the Victorian government uh, commit, you know, procured the what they're calling the Victorian big battery, yes, uh, which was 300 megawatts, and that was the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere at the time. And is that uh, thanks then, to a technology improving, or governments and 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 private companies putting money behind it? I, I mean, the, the techno the cost of the technology is dropping so quickly. Um, you know, as, as you as you're in the process of procuring batteries, you can basically just see the costs coming down. Uh, and that's one of the, the great things about technology, right? Technology becomes cheaper over time as it improves. And we're seeing that with batteries. So, you know, a couple of years ago, where we were talking about a one or two or 300 megawatt battery. Now, all the discussion is about four, five, 600, 700 megawatt batteries. And, and those will play a critical role because obviously it's not always windy, it's not always sunny. Uh, but the role that we'll see batteries playing and also things like pumped hydro is that they will essentially act as sponges. They will absorb all that extra solar power and wind power you know, when it's sunny in the middle of the day or when it's windy overnight, and they'll store up that energy and then they'll discharge it you know, in the evenings or when people get home and turn their air conditioners on. And that's the way that our electricity system is going to work in the future is you know, lots of renewable energy you know, generating when it, when it can – uh, and then storage capacity like batteries and, and pumped hydro, mm. you know, filling in the gaps in between. Mm. Uh, Lachlan, I'd be keen to hear from you as, you know, the engineer behind powering up uh, this new suburb in Kinley in Victoria. What has business been for you like over the last two or three years? We've had uh, policy uncertainty, target uncertainty, but now that seems to be changing with the new government. Are you noticing any changes now? Yeah, Catherine, no, we, we have noticed a change you know, in, in the last you know, few weeks as far as sort of clients' engagements with projects. I mean, the last couple of years, we heard Nick talk about some of those connection rates, which are, which are high and you know, going in the right direction. But but we but business was definitely down for us um, over the last uh, last couple of years uh, with those with the volume of that work sort of dropping off. So, uh, but one of the things that I think's really helped and and, and helps with um, with uh, the, some of the issues that Nick's highlighted is um, the new government's commitment to firstly upgrading the transmission lines because that is really a key. Uh, it's a key element of getting you know the power from A to B. Heard Nick talk about the fact that we're going to there's a lot more sponges going into the network with batteries, uh, but there's still a very strong need for increased transmission to move the energy around the network, and that 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 actually addresses a lot of the issues. Um, that we've been seeing in the last couple of years as far as getting more renewable capacity on the grid. Uh, and the other one, of course, is the commitment to, uh, you know, I think 43% of uh, carbon abatement, but that actually translates to something like 80% renewable energy by 2030. So that's, we sort of get to see the exact sort of incentive for that, but it sends a very strong signal that, and, and quite a few projects that, you know, have been sort of somewhat dormant of sort of kicked back into gear literally in the last couple of weeks, which is which is really good. Well, Lachlan, one of our listeners, John from Yapine, has says Kingley is a non-story unless they have storage. How will they charge their electric vehicles overnight? Yeah, so the work that we've done demonstrates uh, that, 
you can put in the solar and and the storage only really helps the the um, the, the power system from uh, or the, yeah the the power system designs that we've done. So it doesn't restrict the need to, uh, or, or the option to put solar uh, batteries in. So they they're able to do both. But the, actually, from the power systems perspective, the worst case is just you know those fifty thousand panels sitting on those rooftops pushing power during the middle of the day. Mm. And so we've demonstrated in that, which is the worst case from the power systems perspective, that's fine. And then, you know, if you add storage, that's really only going to help things from the um, from the power systems perspective. Well, Lachlan, we heard from Nick there about the, the McIntyre wind farm, the Waratah super battery, and you, and you touched on, uh, Nick, the Kidston pumped hydro. Lachlan, the challenges that you face with uh, getting a town from an engineering and setup perspective for getting a town uh, on solar, I imagine would be quite different to harnessing the renewables from wind uh, or pumped hydro. What separate set of unique challenges might those renewables uh, throw up at you? Well, you know, interestingly, the, the studies that we did were actually, you know, largely the same. We do we do do studies for like much larger projects, um, you know, in the hundreds of megawatts, and so you know, fundamentally, the 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 basic sort of power system checks that we were making for the Kinlay development were essentially the same the same issues that you're looking at for um, for larger projects. So you're, you're looking at what's what what it was doing to voltage. You know, is there enough um, capacity in the lines and the and the transformers to to transfer the energy? Um, I guess what what becomes uh, more more of an issue for these larger projects is is really going into detail on the the dynamic response of the of the generator. If you know if there's a fault on the network or or one of the other big generators trips off, so that that's where you really start to go in a lot more detail on these larger projects and, and just because essentially they're there to support the grid um, and and there's a lot of technology in the inverters and, and mm. all the other equipment that's installed to do that. And just briefly, Lachlan, one of our listeners wants to know what happens to the panels when there are severe hailstorms. Yeah, so they're all, they're all tested as part of the um, as part of the sort of Australian standards and international standards. So... Uh, there's very there's very few instances of of um, smash panels in in hails, and and that's because they're just so so robustly tested. Um, the the panels that get put out on the rooftops um, of homes are a bit different to the ones that get put out in the field, so they're usually a bit smaller. Mm. Uh, and so you know they do things like throw you know firing you know metal metal ball bearings at the panels you know during the testing phases of them. Right. Um, and so they are they are pretty robust. Not to say it doesn't happen ever. But, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're well-tested and robust. It's not like you can drive them into the garage, what you do with your car when it's out on the street where there's no, a warning. Right. <laughs> um, Nick, I'm keen to hear um, about if we do manage to develop our, our power system that's more reliant on renewables, let's say, by this 2030 with some of the examples that you've given us, does that mean that we are not going to be impacted anymore by these international factors such as war and price spikes that we're seeing right now? Yeah, there's no question about that, absolutely. Um, I mean, you look at what, you know, one of the core reasons why our electricity prices are so high right now is because our coal and gas is competing on an international market. You know, we, we export a lot of our coal, we export most of our gas, and so we are linked to those international markets. Our gas prices have gone through the roof because Russia started a war with Ukraine, uh, and that is affecting the, the, the price of gas here. 
if you take coal and gas out of the electricity system, then you're not exposed to that kind of volatility. And, you know, the, the wind projects, solar projects, um, they can, you know, bid into the, the system. So, it, you know, whenever they are generating, they have no fuel costs, right? You know, the, the, the wind blows for nothing and the sun shines for free. So they have no fuel costs, which means they're actually quite, you know, very they're very cheap to, to operate. So that, that's one of the reasons why, well, that's a core reason why renewable energy helps bring electricity prices down. I mean, obviously there's a cost of construction, but the operate the operating costs for renewables is very low. And, and it does also give us that energy independence, for want of a better phrase, where, you know, if we're seeing this challenge that uh, some of the European countries are having right now, you know, Germany and Italy that have previously been sourcing a lot of their their energy, their, their gas from Russia, uh, are now trying to figure out how to not do that. We here in Australia are blessed with a, a, a wide land that is very rich mm. in in wind and solar, you know, even not just because of the scale of the country, but, you know, it is a, it is a very sunny place. It is mm. a very windy place, so, so, and we can use that to our advantage. Just a final comment, and briefly, if you wouldn't mind, if storage is the key to all of this, is there now a race on to develop storage, just like we saw with the boom in, in solar production around a decade ago? Oh, look, I, I don't think you can just say that storage, storage is the is the crucial part. I think this is really a triumvirate. I mean, this is about getting the right balance of of generation, uh, storage, and transmission. I mean, you know, Lachlan was talking about the importance of connecting all these projects. So it's not just. I mean, we certainly need to be ramping up our storage capacity, but we also need to be ramping up our generation capacity and, and getting the grid upgraded to, to accommodate all those projects. Mm. Well, it's been fantastic and fascinating uh, speaking to you both. Thank you so much for joining us on Saturday Extra. Thanks very much. Thanks, Catherine. Great to be here. Dr Nick Aberley there is the Director of Energy Generation and Storage at the Clean Energy Council. And Lachlan Bateman is the Founder and Managing Director of Clean Technology Partners and he's worked on projects such as the Lord Howe Island Microgrid and the ACT Big Battery. Well, up next, how food has shaped Australia. Well, if you asked this country's 26 million people, what is Australian food? You could probably get 26 million different answers, from Indigenous food to British staples to the cuisines brought by wave after wave of migrants. Australia's foodscape, it's diverse, complex and ever-changing. And now more than ever, we're embracing ingredients and practices derived from our local environment. So to end today's show, we're going to look at what our food says about who we are as Australians. And I'm joined by two people who understand and appreciate food much better than most of us. Pelissa Anderson, she's a first-generation farmer, a second-generation restaurateur, a writer and a TV host across networks. And Clarence Slocky is a Kanjinbara Bajalang man. He's currently the director of the Jiwa Company, which specialises in cultural landscape and green space design. And he's a presenter with ABC's Gardening Australia. Welcome to you both. Lovely to be here with you, Catherine and Clarence. Melissa, I might begin with you. Often the way that we grow up with food informs our relationship with it later in life, whether it's what's served up at the dinner each night, where you go out with friends, etc. And your mum, Amy Chanter, opened a Thai restaurant in Sydney in 1989. That grew into the 
well-known Chat Thai restaurant empire across the city, which you've been involved with. So what did food mean to you growing up, Pelissa? I do love this question because, <laughs> <laughs> because this 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 question just is basically what does life mean to me? <laughs> it's mm. one and the same really. Um, we have been, I guess my family have been obsessed with um, food from, I guess for me, the moment of conception because my mum was constantly thinking about the next meal and so therefore we were always thinking about the next meal um, and and as I have grown and matured somewhat in this beautiful country, um, I now really associate food with country. Clarence, I mean, <laughs> how how does your relationship with food today relate back to what you grew up with? Was it very much about that connection to country? Yeah, it was uh, very much in in you know, the similar vein where. The things that you take for granted as a kid, uh, you know, those those cultural aspects of your your own background, regardless of what your cultural background or your ethnicity might be. For us, it was you know spending time at the beach and you know doing the dance for the pippies and you know having a big feed of pippy rissoles or curried pippies and mm. you know, oysters and fresh fish and all all the seafoods. But also having grown up on a family farm, the you know those uh, modern ingredients that uh, you know growing beans and peas and corn and all of the things that people just uh, you know, part of the uh, the dietary staple but you know that, that connection to country for me is, is literally those things that we foraged and were able to eat as young fellows. Mm. What does the dance of the pippies look like? <laughs> it's, it's almost like doing the twist. You've got to you, uh, start uh, moving the hips and getting your feet down into the sand as the, you uh, get down to dig the, the, the pippies out that are uh, hiding away underneath it. Mm. And well, that's a universal dance, isn't it, Clarence? That, I mean, like, I think no matter where you come from, <laughs> that is that's something we all know how, how to do. I think a lot of people have uh, have, have uh, done it from time to time in their life. If you live, live on the coast, that you, you know, I remember seeing people who never you know, had no idea what we're doing, and then uh, you know they come and join in the fun, and then you, know, you, you actually you know start to teach them a little bit about uh, what's going on, and you know don't take those little ones, don't take them all, just take enough, and everything else just goes back where it came from. Just if we can look back for a moment at Australia's history up to the present day, you mentioned migrate migrants there, uh, Pelissa, just how important have how important have our waves of migration been when it comes to what Australians eat? And can you pinpoint a moment or say an era when Australia started to depart from that predominantly Anglo-Celtic cuisine to a more multicultural foodscape? I think um, that, you know, the written, written historical archives that you can research now, I mean, a lot of it up until the 1950s has mostly been Anglo-Saxon, but really I think the waves of Chinese migrants here that came um, for the mining and, you know, and then essentially found another career market gardening to feed the miners. Um, I think the first instance of Chinese restaurants started as early as the 1870s, mm. the first recorded one in, I forget, I think it was around Bathurst. Um, and and then, you know, obviously the Mediterraneans, the Italians, the Greeks, the Lebanese. Um, I, and that's what's brought that rich history of 
all these ingredients that we now see, um, and that is part of the common pantry of most Australians, most modern Australians, whether you're from Thailand or you're, you know, Japanese or Greek or Italian or um Tunisian or whatever, I think you have, you know, everyone has a, a great understanding of what miso is mm. or what, you know, um, uh, ketchup manis or fish sauce. Mm. And and I think we as a nation is definitely richer for it and our food is richer for it. Uh, Clarence, we know that food history here goes back 65,000 years. We know that Indigenous Australians actively uh, were involved in sophisticated agriculture, aquaculture practices with respect to land use and, and security. Just how important is food to the Indigenous culture? Well, I think to, to any First Nations people, it's intrinsically linked to who you are. And, you know, for us, you know, our totemic systems and the link to our ancestral spirits is, is through the environment. And, you know, part of that is, the, you know, the plants and the animals and all, all of the things that rely on each other to be able to survive. So, you know, the, the food aspect of it, you know, and particularly when I go to remote communities and you know, the artists will always ask the plant if, you know, they can take something from it. It's, it's just a beautiful thing. Mm. So, I mean, you've spent years developing a knowledge of Indigenous bush food and these agricultural practices. Can you tell us about their uses, their importance? And and do you think now Indigenous food is getting the recognition in the mainstream that it's been deserving of for, for a long time? Oh, look, I think so. A lot of, lot of things have been around, you know, uh, Seafood in particular, you know, people have been eating that for thousands of years, and it's always been part of the uh, the staple for um, you know for Australia. You know, sadly, when the uh, the, the, the first fleet arrived, they uh, there was so much abundance that they they just caught things because they could, and just thought, oh, how good is this? You know, mm-hmm. two thousand fish at a time. I've been, you know, all the local mob were like, why are you doing that? There's no point to it. Mm-hmm. You know, so these are the sort of sort of uh, things that that have became a little bit of a conflict uh, you know, along with so many other things but you know that that concept of sophisticated agriculture where you know you, you're not doing monoculture you're, you're enhancing the environment so you know the things like yam daisies or even rainforest plums from where I, where I'm at you know making sure that there's enough left on the on the plant so mm. that the birds can eat them and pass them and then you know drop their little nutrient packs for the seed to germinate and you have more and you know for the next generation and generations to come that's the that's the kind of thing that ties the food and and the food culture to you know who we are as a people and I guess one of the oldest things that people are familiar with would be damper you know that's been eaten and used by Aboriginal people you know we we predate the Egyptians in making bread we just mm. didn't have yeast mm, mm. and it's that idea of regenerative farming practices Pelissa I know that you um, employ at the Boone Luck Farm but Clarence I was really interested in a quote that you said in an interview last year you said the interest in native ingredients is in some ways a double-edged sword because you say the benefits aren't being passed on to Indigenous communities and issues around cultural and intellectual property rights aren't either. Can you explain that a little bit? Um, yeah, look, I guess from a purely food perspective, it's, it's great that there's a, you know, an interest, but the, the supply can't match the demand at the moment um, and you know some of the foods have to be wild sourced and you know that um, leads to exploitation and um, overuse and then you know as I said that the, the cultural practices aren't met the the you know, the respect and the protocols and of course the, the monetary 
benefit to communities isn't happening. So that's the double-edged sword element to it. But it's you know, get, getting the awareness out there. There are a lot of people who are becoming way more aware of food sovereignty, for example. But mm. they're, you know, making sure that the the protocols are followed, but also that the the you know, the credit where credit's due and that the financial benefit to those communities who are giving up part of their, you know, their, their, literally their, their cultural sovereignty. Mm. I mean, why has that demand suddenly spiked? Are restaurateurs really now alive to native ingredients? Yeah, look, I think you know, part of it is that a lot of our native ingredients have, haven't been, you know, haven't had the benefit of hundreds of years of development and, and breeding to for specific traits. They're, they're, they're wild and they're, they are pure species and there's really intense flavours that you can gather from them. Mm. So I'll put this to both of you. I mean, you're speaking at the uh, Vivid Talks about, you know, what is Australian food? Pelissa, can you boil it down or sum it up? What would you say <laughs> is Australian food in 2022? Oh, man, this is such a, a difficult question because you ask 10 different people and you'll get 10 different answers. Mm. But um, to me um, and you know, to anyone who lives on the land and um, stewards country, I think for me food is is really country. It's It should be locality. It should be eating in seasons. Um, and I think that is becoming a lot more apparent to many, many people um, in this beautiful country of ours. I think, you know, um, we have such an, a rich history of migration and um, intertwining of different cuisines. I hate to call it fusion, but um, it is a fusion, cross-pollination of mm. sorts. Mm. Um, and I think that's that's what we see now. Well, it's been lovely talking to you both. I very much look forward to uh, joining in the pippy dance if I see one at the beach when I'm next down there. <laughs> Thank you both so much. No problem. Love to talk to you. And that was Pelissa Anderson and Clarence Slocky. They'll be on a panel discussion later today titled How Food Shapes Australia at the Australian National Maritime Museum. Now, that's part of Vivid Sydney. And I don't think I'll mind going out and seeking a rainforest plum. That sounded delicious that Clarence mentioned there next time I'm out shopping. And that's it for Extra with me, Catherine Robinson on ABC RN. Thanks so much for your company. Bye for now. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.